So the focus of our reflections this weekend are all going to be on identity and specifically what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. So and my confession that I make is that I've never read Sister Miriam's book that we heard at breakfast this morning before. Uh, she's just a dear friend of mine. And, um, and then as I was listening to it, I was like, man, she talks just like me. So I sent her a text this morning. I was like, we're giving a women's retreat together this weekend because we're reading your book at the meals. And, uh, and then she wrote back that um, she was praying for you all. And she's giving a men's retreat right now, actually. <laughs> so, so that was pretty interesting. Um, so there's a quote from Pope Benedict that has really formed, you know, everything in, in my own spiritual life and kind of gives us a roadmap to, for the rest of the conferences. And the quote goes like this, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for the Father, being from the Son, and being with the Holy Spirit. Man, for his part, is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern which basically means that when we talk about identity or we talk about the image of God, there's a pattern of love in our lives because we're created in the image of God who is love. And within the Trinity, there's these three kinds of love. The love of the Father that's for the Son, that sacrificial love, the love that says your needs are more important than my needs, the love that those of you who are mothers know very well because it's the love that gets you out of bed in the middle of the night to take care of your crying babies. You know, the love that says I will sacrifice everything for the sake of my children. The love that says I never want to see my children in pain. That kind of sacrificial love. And then there's the love of the son for the father, which is the response to the father's love. Right? It's the response to the father's love. And so... Even within God, you have this dynamism where, like, the Father loves the Son in one way. The Son's love for the Father looks different. It's the response. And so we can say that the Son gives himself to the Father, but what we mean is that he gives himself into the Father's hands. Right? To be a child of God means that we entrust ourselves to him, that we could turn off our brain and let him make all their decisions for the rest of the day, and we know that our life's going to be better at the end of the day than it was at the beginning. And so it's a gift of self, but that gift of self is manifested by surrendering and letting him be the Lord of our lives. And so in the life of Jesus, we see that manifested over and over and over again. When he's on the cross, particularly, and he says, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. Or when he's in the agony in the garden, and he says, Father, if it's possible, take this away from me, but not my will be done, but yours. I trust that you know better than me what my life is supposed to look like. In John's gospel, when he says things like, no one knows the son except the father. When he's with his disciples and he's rejected in certain towns and his disciples say, Lord, should we call down fire and brimstone on that town? And he looks at them and he says, no one knows the son except the father. Like, you're with me all this time and you still don't get it. He says to Philip, have you been with me all this time, Philip, and still you don't know me? No one knows the son except the father. I entrust myself to you. And then the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between them, that kind of being with the Father and the Son. 
And so in our own lives, as we've learned to love and to be in relationship, we first learned to do that when we were children who entrusted our lives completely to our parents. And then as we grew, we went from that being from kind of love to a being with kind of love in friendships that are more interdependent. Those friendships eventually become marriages. And when those marriages become fruitful, we become fathers and mothers that give their lives completely for their children. And so we're created in the image of God to be a daughter who becomes a spouse in order to become a mother. And the pattern matters. So he goes on to say, whenever we attempt to free ourselves from the pattern, we're not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization. To the destruction of being itself through the destruction of the truth. And so freeing ourselves from the pattern, what does that look like? Freeing ourselves from the pattern looks like if I care more about service than being served, I'm freeing myself from the pattern. If I'm more concerned about being a mother than being a daughter, then I'm freeing myself from the pattern. As a priest, if I'm more concerned about people saying good homily, Father, than whether or not I received that from Jesus, then I'm freeing myself from the pattern. But Father, doesn't that sound selfish? <laughs> like, it's not really selfish. Another like way I'd phrase it is, is it more important to love or to be loved? And instinctively, we want to say, oh, to love, of course, because we're Americans and we're like, we're doers. But can we give what we don't have? Can we give what we don't have? When I'm talking to kids, I'll say, well, give me a million bucks. I don't have a million, but I know exactly. Because we can't give what we don't have. And we have to receive in order to be able to give. And so we have to know what it is to be loved in order to love. In order to love completely. Right? Otherwise, in the course of our lives, what happens is we end up giving out of our reserves and we can become very empty. We can become very empty. And so this pattern of child, spouse, parent forms the pattern of our lives. And when we talk about who we are, our first identity is beloved son or beloved daughter. You know, that's what sister was talking about in her book this morning. That our identity is beloved daughter. And we know that because Jesus' identity is the beloved son of the father. In Mark's gospel, we hear the words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then at the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At the transfiguration, this is my chosen son. Listen to him. And at the end of his gospel, the soldier pierces Jesus' side with a lance, and blood and water flow out. And he says, truly, this was the Son of God. But sometimes the pattern gets out of order, and it gets out of order because of sin. And it gets out of order because of sin. And that's the story of all of our lives, is that... You know, we're born into a world where everything is good and then sin happens and things start to get out of whack or they start to get out of order. And when we think about this, like the history of salvation that we see in scripture, like that's the narrative that we see, right? God created the world and everything was good. Then something happened called original sin and things became distorted, right? You can still tell what it's supposed to be. It's just not clear. Right? We still do love each other, but it gets kind of out of whack. And then something else happens. Jesus enters into this distorted world in order to bring clarity, in order to heal what was wounded, so that we can grow in virtue. And then eventually comes the end of time, and we enter into the kingdom of God. 
And that story is our life story, right? That's the story of my life. And if I tell that story, it goes like this. I was born into a world where everything was good. Then something happened. You know, my mom died when I was two years old. My dad was an alcoholic. He was kind of distant in the house when I was growing up. I was about 10 years old when I was introduced to pornography magazines. I was about 14 years old when I was visiting my half-brothers that I hadn't seen in seven years. And they had a rite of passage weekend, so I like drove a car for the first time and hit a stop sign and got stopped by a police officer. It was really great. He offered me marijuana, but I refused because don't do drugs was really effective. But I also watched my first pornography movie with him. And then when I was in high school, I had kind of weak masculine identity. The upperclassmen spread rumors about me that I was gay. All those things are things that happened, and they caused the distortion about how I saw myself and how I understood God and how I understood relationships between men and women. But then something else happened. Jesus entered into that distorted life to reveal to me who I am, to reveal to me the truth about myself, right? to reveal to me the truth about myself. So in order to heal what was broken in all of those moments of my life, so that eventually I could grow in clarity and virtue, and someday hopefully I'll get to heaven, right? That's the story of all of our lives. And it's the story of all of your lives. You know, we all have that story. When we think about our spiritual lives, the question that we can ask ourselves, especially on these retreats, is like, how do I tell that story? Or how do I know that story in my own life? What does it sound like when I tell it? In my head, what does it sound like? You know, I was born into a world where everything was good, and then I went to the seminary and became a priest. I'm going to skip all that distortion part. There was somebody I once was talking to. They were a focused missionary. And I said, tell me your conversion story. And they said, well, I grew up, and I wasn't really catechized well, and then I read a Peter Kreef book, and now I'm virtuous. Like, did Jesus show up? Like, was Jesus in that story anywhere? And we don't always like talking about that part of our story. We don't always like talking about that part of our story or thinking about that part of our story. Now, I was just giving a conference down in Houston to a bunch of seminary students, and, and I'm pretty transparent about telling my own story, and I'll do that as well as we go through the retreat. But this seminarian stayed after, and he was asking me, he was like, Father, do you think it's really a good idea that you actually tell people about your life? Like, do you really think that's a good idea? I was like, why? Did it make you uncomfortable? He's like, yeah, it made me uncomfortable. What made you uncomfortable? Well, then I started thinking about my life. (laughs) I don't want to have to tell people about my life. You know, and you don't have to tell the whole world about your life, but you do have to tell Jesus about it. You know, basically my answer to him was, you know, when you get ordained someday, you don't have to tell everybody your whole story, but you shouldn't be afraid of it if you were to. You should be free. All right, you should be free. And a lot of times, especially if we've grown up Catholic for our whole life, we just, uh, we just don't like to think about those kind of conversions that we have. Because our experience has been that, you know, we got baptized when we were a kid, and then, you know, we started going to confession, and then maybe we had like this dark period, and then we went to confession, and then it was over. In three minutes, it's over. Right? It took like 17 years to make that distortion happen, and in three minutes, I'm going to clear it up, and I'm never going to think about it again. Right? Because that's kind of our experience, right? And, and I'm not really sure that, that's, that that gets to the roots all the time. Because then what happens is, okay, I know I confess this. I know intellectually that I confess this. And I know intellectually that I got absolution. And I trust that it really happened. But then I still beat myself up in my head about what I used to be and who I used to be. And I'm afraid that that's going to come to the surface. And I'm afraid anybody's going to ever ha- like find out that I was once a sinner. 
And we, ex- we exert a lot of energy not acknowledging that part of our life, not acknowledging that part of the story, not letting Jesus into that part of the story, not reflecting on how has our Lord come in to redeem that. And then it just kind of like festers there. And it actually becomes the impediment to experiencing ourselves as beloved daughters of the Father. You know, a question I ask a lot of people when they're kind of stuck in that place, you know, I might ask, like, how do you feel about the college version of you? Oh, Father, I hate that person. How does Jesus feel about the college version of you? Like, what if you in college, you were sitting here right now and Jesus knocked on the door? What would you do? Uh, kick college me out of the room. Right, like when I was in grad school and I was super, I was in this like depressed mode and I was watching, binge watching TV all day. Like binge watching like 18 hours of TV a day. I watched eight seasons of One Tree Hill in three weeks. It's not even a good show. <laughs> Wake up in the morning concerned about like what's going on with these characters. And then I realized they weren't real people. And in that kind of funk, what would happen is, like, I'd be in my room, and I'm just sitting there binge-watching TV, and somebody would knock on my door, and so I'd, like, pull out my book and open it up and, like, close the window and open up a Word document. Come in. Right? Because I want to, like, make sure it looks good, and they don't see who I really am. I think we do the same thing with our Lord sometimes. We can do the same thing with our Lord sometimes. Let me, like, fix myself. But that's not how our Lord acts in the Gospels. You know, when he sees Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus is up in the tree, because he kind of is curious about Jesus, but he doesn't really feel worthy to be there to see him. And so, but he wants to see him, but he doesn't want to be in the front of the crowd because he doesn't want anybody to notice that he's there because he's a tax collector and he's been exploiting all these people. And surely they're going to look at him like, what are you doing here? You're an exploiter of us. And so he climbs this tree so he can see Jesus. And then Jesus sees him and he's like, Zacchaeus! I have to stay at your house tonight. Tonight. Surely in his head, he's like, crap, I got money bags everywhere. (laughs) No, Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come over on Tuesday so you have time to go get rid of your money bags and get out your menorah and your, you know, make yourself look like a good Jew. But I have to stay with you tonight. And he goes into this house of a sinner. And he leaves the house of a disciple. He goes into the house of a sinner and he leaves the house of a disciple. It's what our Lord wants to do in our own lives. You know, to enter into that kind of muck. That's the story that we have in Scripture. It's the story of salvation. Is that Jesus doesn't enter into, it's not like people became perfect so that our Lord could enter in. But he entered into a mess in order to bring resolution to it. And sometimes we lose sight of that. When we think about our family lives, you know, the we're all famous for when we preach on the family, we say, be like the holy family of Nazareth, right? And all of you sit there and go, my husband is in St. Joseph. <laughs> if my husband was St. Joseph, I'd be able to like surrender my life and do all these things, but he's not St. Joseph. But in Matthew chapter one, we have this whole story of our Lord's birth and his genealogy, and it lists off all of these scenarios in that genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob. And we hear about Tamar, who married one of Judah's sons, and then he died, and so she married his younger brother, and then he died. Then Judah told her to go away and be a widow, and as soon as the third son's old enough, he'll send her for him for her. 
And then he never did. And he left her and abandoned and alone and insecure. And nobody's going to take care of her now. And really, like, her husband's family should be taking care of her, but they're not living up to the deal. So she finds out her father-in-law is coming to town. She seduces him, gets pregnant by him, then shows up with a baby saying, okay, now you have to take care of me. Not the Holy Family of Nazareth. That's one of Jesus' grandmothers. And then Rahab, who's a prostitute. Ruth wasn't supposed to be part of that family. She was like a pagan, not a Jew. Bathsheba. And at the end of that long list of people, as we're thinking about all that distortion and betrayal and kind of mess and family dynamics that aren't the perfect family, we hear the words, them was born Jesus. Right? Them was born Jesus. What does that mean? It means if Jesus can be born into that family, he can be born into our families. So that we can grow in clarity and virtue and hopefully someday get to heaven. And when that starts with him being born into our own lives in the midst of our own stories. You know, in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, they both experienced themselves as children of God. When he creates Adam and he puts him in the garden, Adam knows who he is. As John Paul II reflects on that, he says, like, Adam is differentiating himself from the created world. He knows that he's different from the rest of the created world. He knows he's not like the rock or the tree or the animal. He knows that he's like God, and he's in union with God. He knows that God has created him differently than everything else and called him to a relationship. And he has a relationship with God by virtue of the fact that he exists. And then at a certain point, he casts a deep sleep on him and removes his rib and builds that rib into a woman who also recognizes that she is different from the rest of the created world, that she's more like God than the world, that God wants the good for her, that it's good that she exists, that it's good that she exists. But then when temptation enters into the world, what happens that... The devil always wants to attack us in our identity as beloved son and daughter. That's where he attacks us always. Every time we sin, it starts with, I don't really believe God loves me. Even if you have a fight with your husband, it started with, I don't really believe God loves me. Because somewhere along the line, I don't believe God loves me, and so I need this person, this man to love me, and then this man fails me, and then I'm going to fight with him. But it really started with, I don't really believe God loves me. And that's the primary temptation the serpent presents to Eve when he says, if, the, if you eat that fruit, you will not die. You'll be like God. God's trying to keep you down. He doesn't really love you. He just has a bunch of rules for you. And if you declare your independence, you can be like him without him. You can be equal with him. And you won't have to need him. And then both she and her husband eat the fruit and that Holy Spirit is evicted from their hearts. And they lose their identity as son and daughter. Now, after original sin, when the Lord goes to find them, they're, of course, hiding from him in their shame. Because that's what sin does in our lives is it creates shame. And shame is like, I don't, like the person that I was. I don't like the fact that I made this choice. And the last thing I want to do is talk about that sin. So if we have that habit of, "Ah, I don't really want to talk about the sins that I committed in my past or even acknowledge that they ever happened in my life and I just want to forget and like start over like my history is erased. It's nothing new. That's what happened with our first parents in Genesis chapter 3. 
Because when God goes to find them, when the Lord goes to find them, he says to Adam, where were you? And Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He doesn't admit what he did. Right? He points to the effects so as to avoid the cause. So he doesn't say, oh, I ate the fruit you told me not to eat, and I'm really ashamed of that because I don't believe you're going to love me now, and so I'm hiding from you. He doesn't say that. He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. But then what does the Lord do? The Lord names for him what he did. He says, so you ate the fruit that I told you not to eat. I know exactly what you did. And now I'm going to make you some clothes. And he promises a redeemer. In Genesis 3.15, scripture scholars call it the proto-evangelium or the proto-gospel, the first gospel. When the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. That's our Lord's promise that he will send a redeemer. That he will send the one who strikes at the head of the serpent, who crushes the serpent's head. And so even though you've done all these things, I'm going to heal you. I gave you the easy path. But you chose the hard path. But even though you chose the hard path, I'm going to heal you. And that, of course, is fulfilled when Christ comes and offers his life for us. And that pattern is it is the pattern of our own lives. And sometimes we get stuck in it because. We haven't let our Lord enter into the mess of our life. Now, sometimes it's easier for new converts to the faith. Like a brand new convert to the faith who gets baptized. They have this whole life of sin. And then they come to know Jesus. And they hear about Jesus. And they want to surrender their life to Jesus. And so then when they go to get baptized, and they're asked these questions, do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? They have this content in their head, and they're saying, yes, I want to get rid of all of that. I reject all of that stuff. I've done all of this, and now I'm saying no to it. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church? Yes, yes, yes. I accept and surrender my life to our Lord. I want to live in a new way. I'm going to let our Lord into the mess of my life. And there's this definitive moment for a new convert. For those of us who are cradle Catholics, we sort of believe like when we were baptized, we were filled with the Holy Spirit as a baby. And we couldn't, like we're completely filled with grace as a baby. And then ever since then, we've been sinning and kind of leaking grace out ever since then. And we're hoping there's a little bit left at the end of our life when we die. Because when we fall into sin, it's like oftentimes it's before we've caught up to the grace that we received at our baptisms. And then when we go to confession, we can go to confession in a way that uh, we're kind of doing what we're supposed to do so that we hear the words of absolution so that grace happens, but we're not ready to receive it. Because we're still reluctant to give our Lord access to all of it. And we're reluctant to give our Lord access to all of it. And so we have a hard time identifying as beloved sons and daughters. Because there's still parts of our life that need to experience mercy. And it's mercy that kind of reinflates that grace that refills us again with grace in our own hearts.
And we see that happen in Scripture. So in John chapter 4, we hear these words. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with the Samaritans. So our Lord goes to this well, and this woman comes there in the middle of the day, right? which is the hottest part of the day, and she's kind of going there on purpose so that nobody will notice that she went there. Right? So no one will notice that she went there. Because she has shame. Right? Because she has shame. So it's sort of like when I was in grad school and I was watching 18 hours of video a day. And I had shame because I wasn't doing my work. So I had to eat. So I'd sign up for like sack meals. And then I would wait until like everybody was in bed. And I would sneak down the stairs to the basement to the kitchen and grab my sack meal and back up into my room, hoping nobody would notice me. Stupid. Right? But I did that repeatedly because I had shame. And I didn't want anybody to know what I had been doing. And because I didn't want to confront the fact that. I was really depressed, and I didn't know how to get out of it. And I was kind of living this facade life where I pretended like everybody thought I was super studious in my room, writing a doctoral dissertation, and I was like watching One Tree Hill. And so this woman, she has shame about her life. Now, many people would say it's because she had, some people say she was a prostitute. Some people say that, you know, she had just kind of like was an adulterous woman. And so she goes in the middle of the day and then she sees Jesus there. And then Jesus asks her for a drink and she protests like, you shouldn't be asking me for this. I'm not worthy. Right. You shouldn't be asking me for this. I'm not worthy. And, like, whether you are a, like, have a big sinful bad past like me, or, like, you don't, but you still might feel unworthy about things, I think everybody can kind of identify with that. Because I've had amazing people who are asked to do things. Father, I could never, like, I can't, I can't lead a Bible study. I'm not good enough for that. Like, you're amazing. Why do you, like, I just, I'm not, how could Jesus be asking me to do that? Right? How could Jesus be asking me to do that? How could Jesus be asking me to have another child right now? How could Jesus be asking me to be generous with my niece who's going through a hard time right now? How could Jesus be asking me that? I'm not worthy of that. That's her reaction. And then our Lord goes on and he says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So if you knew who I was, and if you knew what is possible for you, then you'd be asking me instead of me asking you. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't even have a bucket. And the cistern is deep. Where can you give me this living water? Like, you can't give me anything. You don't have the ability to give it to me. You don't have the ability to give it to me. I don't really believe that God can help me. I'm so bad, God can't help me. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? So then Jesus answers her back. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. I am the answer to the deepest desires of your hearts. You can fill yourself up with this water 
you can fill yourself up with this job. You can fill yourself up with this volunteer activity. You can fill yourself up with this Pinterest project. But I am the one that will give you what satisfies. I'm the one that will give you, who will give you what satisfies. And you'll never have to go looking for it again. The water I will give will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So then the woman actually, she starts to believe him. Okay, give me this water always. So that I may never be thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here in the middle of the day feeling ashamed. So when she starts to believe the message that our Lord's telling her, and she's starting to believe what our Lord's telling her, she starts to hear the gospel be preached. She starts to say, okay, maybe this is a possible thing. Maybe it's possible that I can kind of live my life in a way that I don't have to externally manifest my shame by coming here in the middle of the day. Then she wants it, right? Then she wants it. And we go through that in our own conversions as well. When, you know, we say, okay, if I do, if I can have something good, right? I can have a good life and I want to change my life and I want it to be better. No, I believe that our Lord can heal me. That's possible. Okay, Jesus, heal me. I want you to heal me. But then comes kind of the punchline. Because after she says, okay, I want you to heal me, Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. Right? I'm going to give you this water that will satisfy the desires of your heart. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to make it so you're never thirsty again. Yes, I want that. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You don't have one. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. So in other words, go get your husband means go get the most shameful part of your life and bring that to me. Bring me the most shameful thing in your life. Bring me the thing that you don't want anybody else to know about. Bring me all of your promiscuity when you're in college. Bring me your alcoholism. Bring me your drug addiction. Bring me your husband's pornography addiction. Bring me your pornography addiction. Bring me the most shameful thing in your life. And I'll give you living water. That's what he says to her. Bring me that part of you that doesn't feel worthy of love so that I can love that person. Right? Bring me college you so that I can love college you. So that I can transform all of that. So that you don't have to wear a facade anymore. So that you don't have to be afraid of your past anymore. And then this woman realizes that he knows exactly who she is. And he loves exactly who she is. He doesn't love the perfect social media version of her. He doesn't love the version of her that is virtuous and prays the rosary and goes to mass every day and is in a women's group where all the women sit around and talk about how holy their families are. Some of you know that group. He loves the version of her that wants to hide. He loves the version of her that feels alone. He loves the version of her that feels abandoned. He loves the version of her that feels ashamed. He loves the version of her that feels unlovable.
And that's who he has offered this living water to. And that's who he's offered this living water to. And when she comes to realize this, the woman says to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. The woman says to him later, I know that the Messiah is coming for the the one called the anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus says to her, I am he, the one speaking with you. She recognizes him because he loves her even in her sinfulness. And then his disciples return. They're amazed he's talking with a woman. But no one says anything. And then the woman leaves her water jar and goes into the town. So she leaves it there. She leaves her water jar there. She leaves behind what she was trying to fill up. What's her water jar? Her water jar is all the ways that she was trying to find satisfaction. So her water jar was her facade, her Pinterest projects. All the things she does to cover up her past She leaves that behind, and then she goes and she proclaims the gospel to her friends. Come see a man who told me everything I've done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And she's reborn as a beloved daughter. Right, That rebirth as a beloved daughter, for her it happens when she comes to know our Lord's mercy Because she's able to be transformed. Father, does this mean like I have to keep going back to my past over and over and over and over and over and over and keep drumming through it? And I thought I worked through that already. I made a general confession 10 years ago. Like the answer to that question is just like if your past comes into your present, then it's not done yet. No, it's not me telling you. You have to go back into your past. It's your past telling you, like, hey, I'm still here. When it shows up as fear. Or when it shows up as shame. When it shows up as a reluctance to trust. When it shows up as a resistance to being a daughter. When it shows up as... A kind of rigidity that comes out of that negative self-talk and shame. So if it keeps showing up, that means that our Lord still wants to heal it. It's not about being stuck in that part of the narrative. It's about letting our Lord redeem it so that we're free. we kind of release it from that part of our heart where we keep it a secret. And when our Lord finally transforms it, it no longer becomes something that we hide from. It becomes like the font of living water 
in us. Becomes the font of living water in us. So the stories that I tell about myself, they'll probably be out of order today, but the one that I think is most appropriate is there was that time in my life. So I was all like depressed and I have all this big junk and, and, um, and I ended up going to therapy for the summer and, um, this was about six years ago. And, and so I start going to therapy and, you know, I, I thought like, you know, okay, I'll go to therapy. I'll do like five sessions of therapy. Then I'll be healed and I'll be good. And I won't ever have to do anything again. And, you know, life will be great. So I still go to therapy. Um, but so I went and when I went, like I started reading all these books and these books were stirring up things from my past. And there was a particular thing that I had an immense amount of shame over and I really didn't know what to do with it. And, and I was going to therapy to a religious sister therapist that I didn't really feel like I could trust with it. And so then I'm like stuck because I'm like, well, in order to get healed, I need to do something with this. But I don't feel like I can tell my person that I'm seeing. And it started to grow into this kind of anxiety. Lots of like negative self-talk. Lots of I'm a horrible person. Lots of, you know, I shouldn't be a priest. I should, I should have been punished. Like just super negative. And I went home and went to my high school class reunion. And uh, I don't usually tell this story, but I'll tell it. So I went home and I went to my high school class reunion. And um, we were at this redneck bar in this little town where they don't know how to pour, like, drinks. And, uh, and I was drinking. They had, like, top-shelf scotch, but they didn't know how to pour which meant you got singles for the or triples for the price of singles, and I overdrank, and um, and so then at the end of the night nobody was around, and uh, it was just me in my car, and then I was like stuck in this dilemma. Like if I sleep in my car, I'm going to get a ticket. If I drive my car, uh, I might be okay. I might not be okay. I'm not really sure. But I'm going to get a ticket either way, so I'll just try driving, and then I'll pull over if I'm, like, in trouble. Really smart, right? I mean, the option of calling a friend to come get me, like, that wasn't even an option. Because I can't rely on people. That's ridiculous to rely on people. And so I ended up, like, um, kind of pulling out of the parking lot, and, like, I got pulled over. And, um, so I ended up going to jail. It was great. And I'm getting booked and I'm thinking to myself, this is an appropriate response to that uber shameful thing that I can't talk about from my past. I totally deserve this. This is what I deserve. I'm getting what I deserve. My life's supposed to suck. Next morning I wake up in this like, you know, place and there's like five other dudes in there and, and, um, and just like crying out to our Lord from my heart. And, and I heard Jesus say really distinctly, Sean, if you want to punish yourself for your past, you can be in here. But if you want me to love you, I'll love you. If you want to punish yourself for your past, you can be in here. But if you want me to love you, I'll love you. Bam. And that pierced through all of the kind of shame, self-loathing, doubts that I was lovable, good, redeemable. And I tell that because it's kind of, it was a very, very concrete moment 
in my life that is an analogy for what we all go through. It's what our Lord says to all of us. If you want to keep yourself in the prison of facade, of pretending like everything's okay, of being afraid that anybody's going to find out about your life, you can keep yourself in that prison. But if you want me to love you, I'll love you. And his love is what releases us. And we stay in lots of prisons. Our prison can be a very enclosed circle of friends that's not really vulnerable with each other. Our prison can be our social media life. Our prison can be constantly being angry at a spouse. Our prison can be like rigidity in order to control so that nothing bad happens. Like all those things can be prisons that our Lord wants to free us from. And he just will free us if we like, if you want me to love you, I'll love you. That's what happens to this woman. She was in the prison of going to the well in the middle of the day so that nobody sees her. And then our Lord said to her, I can give you living water. Do you want the key to get out of prison? Bring me your husband. You know, and so during this time of prayer, it might be a time to reflect on what are the obstacles to trusting our Lord in your own life? Now, what are those obstacles? Whether they're big or small, What are those obstacles? And those obstacles may be sins that you habitually commit or sins that you're caught up in yourself. Or those obstacles might be other people's sins that have been committed against you that have kind of broken your trust muscle. Those obstacles might be just circumstances. Those obstacles may be the things that you're ashamed of from your past. What are the obstacles that keep you from trusting in our Lord's love? Because that's the place that our Lord wants to go in order to restore your identity, in order to restore who you are. Now, in the next conference, we'll talk about how to pray with those things. But just to make an inventory. What are the things that keep you from trusting in our Lord? What are those things you hold on to? Because our Lord does want to set you free. To crush the head of the serpent. To turn off that self-accusatory voice. He wants to reveal to you who he is. And invite you into his relationship with the Father. That you may know with full confidence who you are. His beloved daughter. Daughter.